Please take your Bibles and turn to the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And uh, I would like to read uh, this uh, section of uh, Paul's letter, beginning with verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread which we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or or an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? People who are students of uh, human behavior, psychologists, psychiatrists, counselors, uh, social scientists have uh, pointed out what they what they have described as a, a great sense of meaninglessness in our culture. People have no idea what they're, what they're here for. They don't know where they have come from. They don't know where they're going. And they don't know what to do in between. That's why there's so much restlessness in our culture. And that's why so many people's lives disintegrate into substance abuse. And so many deteriorate into suicide. A couple of years ago, uh, our son, Brian, who is an English teacher in a high school over in Oregon, uh, sent me a poem that he picked up from an anthology of, of poems. It's written by a man named Edwin Robinson, who lived in the early part of this century. It goes like this. Whenever Richard Corey went downtown, we people on the, base, on the, on the pavement looked at him. He was a gentleman from sole to crown, clean favored and imperially slim. And he was always quietly arrayed, and he was always human when he talked. But he still fluttered pulses, uh, pulses when he said good morning, and he glittered when he walked. And he was rich, yes, richer than a king, and admirably schooled in every grace. In fine, we thought that he was everything to make us wish that we were in his place. So on we worked and waited for the light and went without meat and cursed the bread. And Richard Corey, one calm night, went home and put a bullet through his head. And we read a poem like that and we think of uh, Thoreau's comment that most people live lives of quiet desperation. and, And we have to agree that there is a great hunger in our culture today for something to give significance to life. What are we here for? What is the business of life? I believe that uh, Paul is primarily concerned with addressing the, the two centers of life. The two things that, uh, that more than anything else give meaning and significance to us in this, in this passage that we want to look, about, uh, look at today. And what he says 
primarily is that the business of life is loving God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength and all of our mind and our neighbor as ourself. As you read through this passage, uh, I think you would conclude that the first portion of it from verses 14 through 22 have to do with, with knowing God, and loving God, and worshiping God, and why that's important. And the last section, which I didn't read, uh, will in a moment, from verses 23 on through 11, one has to do with, with loving others. Those are, the, those are the parameters of life. Those are the fixed reference points around which everything else revolves. That's the business of life, loving God and loving people. And as a friend of mine says, everything else is monkey business. Those are the preoccupations of life. We may have various occupations. You may work at Hewlett-Packard or you may work in some other place making widgets and selling spoodlum shafts and all the wonderful things that we are engaged in buying and selling and making. But the really important uh, Issues of life are sometimes sometimes bypassed. What really matters more than anything else is loving God and loving people. That's what Jesus said. That's that's the great command. Now, uh, at the risk of sounding repetitious, I want to go back again and remind you of uh, of the organization of chapters eight through eleven one because they're all uh, all the material in these chapters are gathered around one theme, as Paul says to the Philippians. To say the same things to you is not uh, onerous to me, and, and it's safe for you. It's always good to repeat things. We, we remember things better if they're repeated over and over again. But I, I just I want to remind you again of what, this, uh, what these texts are all about. The, the concern of the Corinthians was uh, that of the propriety of eating meat that's offered to idols. Pagans would bring their sacrifices to uh, to the temples, and uh, only a portion of the animal would actually be consumed in the sacrifice, and what was left over would either be eaten in a sacrificial meal, which was a part of idol worship, or it would be sold in the marketplace. And if you wanted to buy meat, that's where you went. You went to the butcher shop. The question had had been raised among the Christians in Corinth, is this really proper? Should we be eating meat offered to idols or do we somehow implicate ourselves in idolatry when we eat that meat? And Paul answers unequivocally, there's nothing wrong with eating that meat. Go on down to the butcher shop, buy yourself a, a T-bone steak and bring it home. And, and in no way are you involved in, in idol worship. Because we know, he says, that an idol is, is nothing. However, that knowledge always has to be tempered by love. The really important thing in life is not what we know, but how we treat, treat people and and he says, knowledge can make us arrogant. Knowledge can cause us to run roughshod over people. It's very important that we love others. And that may entail from time to time giving away some legitimate right that we have. And the rest of that section in 9, the rest of chapter 9 and through chapter 10, is really an excursus where he talks about rights and privileges and liberties and freedoms and the good things that we have from God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything is ours to enjoy. We have certain privileges, but Paul says sometimes we have to set those rights aside as our Lord did in the cross. He set aside the right to life in order to purchase our salvation. Sometimes uh, to use our freedom is to impair the spiritual life and growth of someone else, so we need to be willing, he said, to set anything aside. He uses Israel as an example of, 
of the people of God who are unwilling to set aside some basic rights. And he talks about the disastrous uh, effects of, of that, uh, uh, what he describes as idolatry, really craving something other than God. And then that leads him in verse 14 to this command, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. It's the only sensible thing to do. He says, I'm talking to people that, that think they're sensible. And then he goes on to explain why we ought to take flight from idolatry, why it's so dangerous that we shouldn't temporize with it. It is, as he describes earlier, the most common temptation of all, this desire for something other than God. It assaults all of us every day, and uh, it pursues us, and so we have to flee from it. Why? Well, it's not because idolatry is not pleasant. It's not because the pleasure is short-lived. That's good. That's very good. It's because idolatry draws our hearts away from God. And it leads us into abysmal unhappiness and despair. See, God wants the very best for us. We were made for God. And without God, our hearts are irreparably restless. There's nothing that will satisfy us. And so because he loves us, he wants to keep us close to him because that's where we're going to find meaning and significance in life. Now, the way he argues is odd, and, and it probably would only make sense to people that were ingrained in the symbolism of that culture. But let me try to explain where Paul is going with this argument. He, he pulls together three feasts. He contrasts two of them with another, with a third. He first of all describes the, uh, what we would call the Lord's table, which is the Christian form of a sacrificial meal, if we can put it that way. It's the means by which we symbol, symbolize this great uh, sacrifice which our Lord made uh, for us. And, and it really is the Lord's table. It's though he's the host and he invites us to come and eat and drink with him. In pagan uh, religions, they, they really did feel that they ate and drank with the gods. The gods were there. Paul's going to say later, those are not gods, those are demons. But nevertheless, uh, the, the gods, they actually have on record some invitations that were sent out from the gods inviting the people to come and eat and drink with them. That was, that was the way they, uh, they looked at their idol sacrifices. And Paul says the same is true of us as Christians. This is the Lord's table. He's the host and he sends out invitations and he says, come and and eat and drink with him. And, and, and of course, uh, the symbolism actually goes back to the Passover and that, that day, that, that, that historic day when, when Israel gathered as, in families and they ate and drank as families. And uh, later in the upper room, our Lord, in the course of the Passover meal, gave it new, uh, new significance. He pointed out that he was the Lamb of God that the Passover feast uh, symbolized. This was the reality of which all the other sacrificial meals uh, were, were symbols. And uh, what Paul is saying in this passage is that when we take that cup of thanksgiving, that, that is a, a cup that evokes in us that, that, that enormous sense of thanksgiving for what Christ has done for us, that we're participating in the blood of Christ. And the bread which we break is a participation in the body of Christ. And what he's saying is that we are joined together with Christ in that, in that act, in the simple act of sharing that meal. We're, we're bonded, to use the more contemporary uh, term. And we as Westerners don't put much stock in symbolism. If you go to the East, they, they really do. I, I remember my first trip to uh, Palestine, and I was, 
uh, I was really bothered by the way they embellished all the holy sites with gold, silver, and tapestry. And, and that's, you know, that's not the way we Westerners do things. And the, the man who was guiding us uh, commented to the man who was uh, with us, uh, Dr. Bruce Walkie, and, and Bruce said, well, you don't understand. He said, here in the East, symbolism is very important. And while gold and silver looks garish to us, we, we preserve our historic sites uh, in their primitive state. In the East, symbolism is very important, and this embellishment is their way of saying how much they love the Lord. And uh, Paul would say this symbolism of the table, that the Lord is the host, and we, we eating and drinking of him is, is more than just a symbol. There's a reality there that, that there is a participation and a, a union with him as a result. We're never the same. When we, when we walk away from that table. That's why I like to eat with, with men. I don't like to meet in my office. It seems cold and sterile. I love to get out to restaurants, not because I love restaurant food, but there's something very special about just sitting across the table from a man and, and sharing a meal or having a cup of coffee together. It's something more than the simple act. There is a, there's an intimacy about it. And a participation, a sharing in common, which is actually the word that Paul uses, the word koinonia, which you may be familiar with, a sharing in common with everything that we have in Christ. That's, that's the Christian sacrificial meal. And then he alludes to a second sacrificial meal, which is uh, uh, the one that, uh, that Israel participated in. At the end of the harvest, they would gather uh, in Jerusalem, and they would bring a tithe of their crops. Some of it would go to the Levites because the Levites didn't have land. They had to be support, supported by the people. But most of the food was eaten by the people. They brought their, their tithe to the temple, and then they all uh, gathered together in this huge communal meal, and they ate and they, and they drank together uh, as a way of expressing their thanksgiving to God for the harvest. Pagans did that too. They had their pagan meals, and, and they gathered together, and they... Uh, they gave thanks to Baal because he was the, the, the God who, who brought the, the rain and brought fertility to the earth. And uh, uh, Moses says, you don't do it like that. You don't gather with, with the, the Baal worshipers because fertility does not come from Baal. It comes from God. And you don't gather all over the place as the Baal worshipers do. You come to Jerusalem, which is the center of everything. And there you eat and drink. And then twice, in the, if you go back to Deuteronomy 14 and read the, the original, uh, the original uh, law there, it says you do this in the presence of God. It's as though he is there again inviting his people to eat and drink with him. Now, he says those two sacrifices are very much like the pagan sacrifice because he says the same thing happens there. Uh, verse 19, uh, pardon me, verse 20, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to, to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and, and the table of, uh, of demons. You see, what was happening in Corinth apparently is people were still dabbling in idol worship. They were still eating at the temple, and they were gathering around the Lord's table. And Paul says, you, you, can't, you can't do that. You can't do that. See, you, he says there's one loaf here, and, and all, all of you participate in that one loaf. There's a solidarity about the people of God, and there's a solidarity about their union with Christ. 
And you cannot be both united to Christ and to demons. You can't. The idolatry, he says, is a very serious thing. Idols are nothing. But idolatry is, is everything. Now, I want you to turn back to Matthew 6, if you will, to what I think may have been in, in the back of Paul's mind when he said you cannot eat at the, the table of demons and at, and at the Lord's table. It's uh, here in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, verse 19. Jesus says, Don't store up treasure for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and, and steal. This is not a ban on saving or, or being uh, prudent or stewardly. He's talking about selfish uh, accumulation, sir greed, as uh, Luther uh, described it. But uh, rather store up for yourselves treasures in, in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. The commodities you send there don't get rusty and moth-eaten and, and people can't steal those treasures away from you. Because, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You understand what he's saying? What we treasure is what we put our mind on. If, if we want to know what our idols are, just we need to ask ourselves, what preoccupies us? What's the first thing you think of when you get up in the morning? Where does your mind go when, when your mind relaxes and you're not thinking about anything else? That your predominant thought is... It's probably the thing that you treasure above everything else. And, and Paul says, where that treasure is, that's, that's where your heart is. That's where your heart goes. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If, if your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? He's using is one of those hard sayings of Jesus. But if you stop and think about it, you know exactly what he's saying. If the eye is, is good, if it's single, if it's focused on God, then the whole, our, our life is full of darkness. We have discernment. We, we know the value of things. We can discern the difference between the good things and the bad things and the really worthwhile things and the things that need to be, to be set aside. But if the eye is, is evil, and here he uses, actually uses the word dual. If you have one eye on one thing and one eye on something else, how great is that darkness? See, we don't... We're filled with moral confusion. We, we don't know the value of things and we don't know the use of things and we're inclined to give our, ourselves to things that, that don't last and don't matter. See? Get our values confused. Tony Campola tells a story about a bunch of high school kids that broke into a, a clothing store and uh, switched, it was just a prank, and they, they switched all of the price tags. And so the next morning when the customers came to purchase clothes, a coat that normally sold for $500 would have a price tag on it for $50, and a shirt that, that would sold for $50 would have a price tag of $500 on it. And, of course, that's exactly what's happening in our world today. We, we place the highest value on the things that are ultimately least valuable, and that's the result of, of an, an evil eye, an eye that's not focused and fixed on God. And then Jesus goes on to say precisely what Paul says, no one can serve two masters. He doesn't say you shouldn't serve two masters. 
he, he really is saying what Paul is saying. You cannot serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is just the Aramaic word for, for money. If, if, you, if you make a God out of money, as somebody said, it'll, 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 it'll plague you like the devil because it'll, it'll pull your heart away from God. You see, that's the problem with idolatry is that it draws our heart away from God. Conversely, when our, when our eyes are centered on the Lord, when we're focused on him, then our hearts are drawn away from idolatry. If you want to know how to, how to deal with the love of money in, in, in your heart, you can't make your poor old heart stop loving money. You can't. But if you begin to focus on God and direct your love toward him, money will become less and less attractive to you. See? So the real issue here is God's desire that we love him with all of our hearts and all of our souls and all of our minds because he knows that there's simply no other source in the world of, of happiness. He wants a, the very best for us, and he does not want us to end our lives in, in despair. And so when he sees us being seduced away to other preoccupations, he becomes jealous. You go back to 1 Corinthians again. In Paul's last word here in verse 22, last word in this section, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? See, he will not permit us to be seduced away from, from him. He'll strike at the thing that's drawing our hearts away. He will destroy it. And if our emotions are entwined around it, oh my, how it will hurt. But you see, it's for our good. Corey Ten Boom said that we have a tendency to cling to things too tightly and God may have to pry our fingers loose. And oh my, how it hurts when he does. But he wants the best for us because he loves us with all of his heart. He's like a jealous husband. And when he sees us being drawn away, he goes after us with all of the fury of a jealous husband. I think I told you some years ago of a man who who came to talk to me and he said, my, my next door neighbor is, is uh, uh, putting a move on my, on my wife. He said, what, what, what should I do? And uh, I said, well, I'll tell you what I would do. If I were in your shoes, I'd go out in the garage and I'd cut me a two before, about four feet long. And I'd go next door and I would say, my friend, if you ever lay another hand on my wife, I'm going to put a forked nut on your head. And he said, is that Christian? And I said, you bet your life it is. Because that's exactly what God does. See, there is, there is, a, there is an ignoble uh, jealousy. But there is a noble jealousy. We belong to God. We don't belong to anybody else. See? Just as Carolyn belongs to me, if anybody messes with her, then it, then it arouses my anger and my jealousy. It ought to. There's something wrong with me if it doesn't. And uh, when we, uh, our hearts begin to turn away from the Lord, he, he comes after us in fury. Not because he hates us, but because he hates the thing that is seducing us. And uh, he will destroy it if he possibly can. Now, uh, the, the second issue here is that of people, centering on people. I think it's very clear from the section which we've just read that Paul's concern is that we love the Lord with all of our hearts, all of our souls, uh, 
That's, that's the business of life. That's what makes us happy. We're restless until our hearts find rest in him. Then he turns to a, a parallel uh, uh, priority, which is loving people. And your neighbor, he says, you shall love as yourself. Uh, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience' sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should my conscience be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, that is to stumble into sin. Don't impair anyone's spiritual life and and growth, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Even as I try to please everybody in, in every way, he said. See, not that he's a man pleaser, as he goes on to explain. For I am not seeking my own good. It's not codependency. He doesn't do this because he has some some need, some deep need to be loved and uh, to have people appreciate his service. He says, I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many. So that many may be saved. Follow my example, he says as I follow the example of Christ. First, he states the principle in verse 23, and then the way that principle is put in practice in verses 25 to the end of, uh, of this section. The principle is simply this. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Remember, Paul is quoting their words. He quotes that very phrase in chapter 6. Everything is uh, okay. And, and as I pointed out in chapter 6, that's true. It's hard to think of anything in and of itself that's evil. Everything created by God is good, Paul says. But some things we twist and distort and misuse and use selfishly and use in ways for which they were not, uh, not intended. So Paul says, while it is true that everything is good, that God has given us the whole world to enjoy, some things are not beneficial. And then to clarify, he says, everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Not everything edifies, doesn't build up. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Do you understand what he's saying? That what really matters is not my liberty, but my freedom to serve the needs of others for the sake of Christ. To be constructive to have that perspective on everything, wherever I go, to want to see people come to know Christ and see people grow in that relationship. See, again, that's, that's the business of life, loving God and loving people in constructive ways. I've always been intrigued by the, the uh, relationship of chapters 10 and, uh, to chapter uh, to, uh, the relationship of chapter 10 in Genesis to chapter 11, because one doesn't seem to follow the other. In chapter 10, you have the story of the Tower of Babel. And uh, 
men in their typically grandiose ways talk about this incredible project which they're they're engaged in and they're going to they're going to get to heaven this way and make a name for themselves and the very next chapter seems disjunctive because there's a long uh, almost endless string of names and genealogies terminating with the name of Abraham and I've often thought that the point of those two passages, the juxtaposition of those two passages is this. While most people were, were building a thing, God was building into a life. While they were building a tower by which they would get to God, God was creating a man that would, that would change the whole shape of human history because of his impact upon the world. See, that's what God is about. He's under-impressed with our building projects, our achievements, what really matters is building the lives of, of people. And that ought to be our preoccupation. It doesn't make any difference what you do. You may be an engineer, lawyer, homemaker, physician. That's your, that's your occupation. But your preoccupation ought to be to build the lives of men and women. That's the way you make your living. That's the way you put bread on the table. You have to do that. You're a tent maker. But though you're not a professional minister in any sense of, of the word, your, your primary preoccupation is to help men and women come to know God and, and grow in that relationship. Or to use Jesus' terms in Matthew 6, to send treasure on ahead to heaven. As I've said so often, the only commodity that's going on uh, going ahead to heaven is, uh, is people. As Chuck Swindoll says, no, you never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. We're not going to take it with us, but we're going to take people with us. Or to use Jesus' other, other analogy, make friends, he says, with mammon, with your money, so that they'll greet you when you get to heaven. Use your resources to send, send people on ahead who will love you because you cared enough for them to use your, your, your money, your time, your, your energy to, to get them there, see. I have a dear friend and mentor, Bud Hinkson, who was just killed this, uh, last year in a bicycle accident over in, in Europe. And uh, when I was working with college students, Bud was my, was my trainer. He used to take me into fraternity meetings and various other situations, and that's, that's how I learned to work with students. And I remember one time sitting across from Bud in, uh, in the student union, and, and Carolyn was with me, and, Bud was putting together a team of 70 men and women to go overseas and work behind the Iron Curtain in Eastern Europe at that time, which eventually he did. It had a tremendous impact on that area of the world. And uh, Bud had these uh, steel blue eyes. I'll never forget them. And he, and he looked at me across the table at Carolyn, and, and he said Come, he, he wanted me to go with him on, uh, on this uh, venture and be part of this team, be a, a Bible teacher for the team, and, and Carolyn also. And uh, uh, he, said, uh, he said, David, Carolyn, uh, come with me, and we're going to change the lives of men and women. And then he said something I've never forgotten. He said, if I had my life to live it over, I would live every moment of it. To change lives. Because, he said, you haven't done anything until you've changed the lives of men and women. And I've never been able to forget that. It was not God's will for me to follow Bud on that particular occasion. But I've never forgotten that statement. You haven't done anything until you've changed the lives of, of men and women. And uh, this is what Paul is saying. 
on, on a number of occasions throughout this passage, he has reminded us that that's the main thing. Verse 19 of chapter uh, 9, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. As I said before, subject to none, servant of all. Verse 22 of that same chapter, chapter 9. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. And then uh, in chapter 10, uh, no one should seek his own good but the good of others. Verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Verse 33, I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that, so that they, may be, they may be saved. That's our preoccupation, regardless of what our occupation is. Now, uh, Paul turns from the principle to uh, an application of it in practice. And I, and I don't have time, really, to, uh, to elaborate on these verses. But let me call your attention to uh, Paul's three statements with reference to things that are sold in the marketplace. Uh, buy it. Take it home. Put it on the barbecue grill. Enjoy it, he says. Because uh, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And he says, do so without raising any questions. See, the, the Jewish rabbis had already made a decision on this issue. And they, they had prohibited eating meat offered uh, to idols. And so any Jew going into the marketplace would, would ask the butcher, is this meat offered to idols? And if it was, then they wouldn't uh, purchase it. What have they do with it? And that's why Paul says, don't raise any questions. Don't even ask. Because an idol's nothing. You go to the meat market, buy any piece of meat. Don't make any difference. Take it home and, and enjoy it because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it. God made uh, animals, as Peter puts it, to be caught and killed and used for, uh, uh, for our good. Not that we abuse that privilege and abuse animals, but they're part of creation that God gave us to be, uh, to be enjoyed if it's for our sake. And then in verse 27... Another practical application, if some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without asking questions. Again, see, because the average Jew was, was, was very uptight about this matter. And, and if he was invited to someone's house to uh, participate in a meal, he would ask, is this uh, meat that's been offered to idols? And often to the great embarrassment of the, of the host and hostess. And they'd have to go find something else to feed this individual. Paul says, don't ask. Just enjoy it. Just get out your steak knife and go to work on it. But, verse 28, if anyone says to you this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience sake. Oh, he says, I'm not talking about your conscience. You could eat it. You, you would have no problem with this. But there are people out there whose consciences are, are sensitive. And you say, now, who raises this question? Well, I think if anybody raises it, that's Paul's point. If the host raises it, if he says, this is meat offered to idols, I would think, you know, why did he, why did he offer that, uh, that uh, information? Is he testing me? What, what, what's going on here? And uh, Paul says, in a case like that, that, that you, you, you would choose not to eat. Or if a Christian friend, a, a brand new Christian, 
who is accustomed to idol worship and whose conscience is still weak and who still feels that to eat meat offered to idols would somehow compromise uh, him in front of this, these non-Christians, then, then you, sh- you should not eat. You see, again, you're just giving up your rights for the sake of, of others in order to seek the very best for them. To insist on your right would be idolatry, as, he, as I mentioned last week. That's this common temptation, this craving for something other than God, this feeling that we have to have something other than God himself. We have to eat this meat. And Paul says, no, you don't have to. You can set that right aside and do so for the sake of, of others. I was really struck by that statement. If some unbeliever invites you to, meal and, uh, to a meal, and I thought about that uh, quite a bit during, uh, during the week, Paul assumes that the Christians of his day had non-Christian friends. And not only did they have non-Christian friends, they had non-Christian friends who felt comfortable inviting a Christian, you, the Christian, to his or her house for dinner. And I have to ask myself a couple of questions. Number one, do, do, do I have any friends that are unbelievers? Or do I live in a kind of Bible city, you know, where, where the only people I surround myself, the only activities I'm engaged in are Christian activities? I think sometimes we're like rabbits, you know, that pop out of a hole and we dash through this dangerous world and we jump into another, another hole trying to protect ourselves from contact with, with unbelievers. And yet Jesus said to his disciples, I send you out as sheep among wolves. So we need to be right out in the middle of the world. Jesus was the friend of sinners. He hung out with people that others uh, would describe as, uh, as as uncomfortably wicked. People others didn't want to be around with. He didn't want to be around. He would he talked to prostitutes on the street. He 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 went to dinner with Zacchaeus, his hated tax collector, the equivalent of which today would be a, a drug dealer. I think in terms of the sentiment that society would have toward that individual. He, he was constantly accused of being the friend of sinners, as though that's something despicable. But it isn't, you see. He loved sinners. Hebrews says he was separate from sinners, but, but that book is talking about the fact that he was morally and ethically separate. He wasn't involved in their sin, but he wasn't spatially separate from sinners. He, he, he logged a great deal of time with with those that the religious people didn't want anything to do. And the, the interesting thing is that they weren't uncomfortable around Jesus. The religious people were. They, could, they couldn't stand him. But the sinners loved to have him around because he wasn't uptight. And he, he wasn't harsh and critical, carping in, in, the, in the way he dealt with them. He was at ease. He could listen to their dirty jokes and, and not be offended by them. He could listen to their... Their language, not enter into it, but not shrink from it or show disdain on his, on his face. He was comfortable to be around because he understood that the sin of which the unbelieving world is guilty is not uh, that they uh, that they lie and cheat and steal and and use filthy language and tell dirty jokes. That that those are the sins that Jesus died for. You understand that? That's all taken care of. When God looks at the unbelieving world, he doesn't see their sins. The only sin he sees is the sin of unbelief. That's why 
Jesus said that the Spirit of God is always convicting the world of sin, and then he explains what that sin is. It's the sin of, of unbelief, because they do not believe on me. That's the only sin that God holds against the unbelieving world. It's wrong for us to hold any sins against them. And we, we may be uh, distressed by their lifestyle because it, it, it's destructive. Sin always destroys the quality of life. And it may make us sad when we see what they're doing to themselves. But uh, we shouldn't be uptight about it. And, and non-Christians should feel comfortable uh, around us because we clearly see what the issue is. A couple of years ago, there was a story in Reader's Digest. Some of you may have seen it about a, a man whose car was stolen right in front of his eyes. He... Uh, left his keys in the car, which is not a wise thing to do, and he jumped out of his car to run into a grocery, uh, a drugstore. And after he purchased the uh, uh, product that he went in to buy, he looked out the window and he saw his car leaving. And uh, some uh, uh, young man had seen, had noticed the keys in the car and decided to go joyriding, and he jumped into his car, and the last thing he saw was a cloud of dust as his car went over the hill and and his first thought was just fury that this uh, young man had stolen his car. And then the second thought that came to mind was the fact that in the seat next to him, he had a box of soda crackers that had been laced with arsenic. He worked in a warehouse, and he was going to take that, uh, take those soda crackers and throw them around in the warehouse to kill rats. And it was sitting open in the seat right next to him, and he knew what would happen. It's what anybody would do, he'd reach in there and start eating those soda crackers, and he realized that young man would perish. And he immediately got on the phone and alerted the police and they located a CB because there was a CB radio in his car and he did everything he could to try to reach that young man, to turn him back, not because he'd stolen the car. That paled in significance to the real issue, which was the life of that, of that young man, you see. And that's the way we ought to be looking at, uh, at the world around us. Christians, non-Christians, anyone that we come in contact with, what, what is our goal? Well, to, to have an impact on their life, to influence them in some way, to nudge them closer to God, to move them on a bit in their walk with Him. If they're unbelievers, to, uh, to model before them the grace of God and to encourage them to take a, a better look at, at God. People, are, are, their minds are so distorted by some of the concepts they have of the Christian faith. And when we model authentic Christianity before them, it, it ought to evoke in them a, a response, a desire for him. and To live the, the life of Christ before them and love them as, as he loved them and just move them closer to him. And then as we come in contact with Christians through the day, not to be pushy, not to try to try to wedge some word, some good word into the conversation, but just to be relaxed and to say, Lord, I want to make, I, I want to help this this brother or this sister make some progress spiritually. Just use me in whatever way you see fit to to move them a little closer to you. See, I tell the interns, really, ministry is very easy. It just has two components: befriending people and imparting the truth. That's all it is. Just making friends out of people and then telling people what God has been telling you. You're not responsible for anything you don't know, but whatever God is teaching you, whatever you read that morning that's important to you, that, that made a difference in your life, you just share that with, with someone else. As I look back on my own uh, spiritual uh, pilgrimage, I can say that, that some of the most significant things were said to me not 
by someone who was teaching me in a formal way, but someone whose life was full of the truth of, of God, and they just imparted some, some truth that, that moved me closer to God. And our hearts hunger for that. More than anything else, we want to have an influence on others. You don't have to go into professional, vocational ministry to do that. You can do that at your workbench or in your home, wherever you find yourself, in your car. You just make yourself available to him. Paul did that. And look at the enormous influence that he had on, on, his, on his time. He goes into a strange city and he's walking down the street and this young girl comes out cursing and and, uh, she's apparently demon-possessed and Paul turns and just talks to her and touches her life and and she's never the same after that. He comes into the city of Philippi and here are ten Jewish women that are meeting to study the Bible and, and Paul just walks into that group and starts to talk about about his Lord, relate what Christ did to the Old Testament, and, and these women respond. Or he's sitting in prison, chained to a, a Roman uh, soldier in four-hour shifts, the, the, the brightest, the best of, of Caesar's imperial army, the, the toughest young men in the army at that, at that time, the imperial guard, and he begins to share Christ with them. And one after another, they start meeting the Lord and taking the good news back uh, into the barracks or Paul is standing in a Roman court and he just very quietly and very gently and with great respect witnesses to the judge and the judge says, Paul, you've almost persuaded me to, to be a Christian. Or while he's sowing tents in the middle of the, the night working to support himself, he shares the gospel with, with this fine young Jewish couple and uh, they, they come to Christ. And Everywhere this man went, he just touched lives in a, in a significant way. And Paul says in verse 1, it's unfortunate that verse 1 was included in chapter 11 by some early translators. It goes way back. It actually belongs with chapter 10. Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. We don't relate very well to causes, at least I don't. We relate to people. And uh, here's one who who says, first of all, we need to look at the example of Christ and look at the way he went about his ministry. He he was focused. He he loved the Father with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind. And and then he loved people. He didn't come to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a sacrifice for many. Subject to none, as he put it, no one can take my life away from me. Servant to all. Paul says, I, I, I was the, the same sort of, I have the same sort of focus in my life. And he calls us to the same. And so it really comes down to this. The business of life is loving God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and our neighbor as ourself. That, those are the only, the only issues that count. And as Joe Aldridge puts it, the main thing, is to keep the main thing, the main thing. Let's pray. Our prayer this morning would be that we would do just that, that we, their eyes would not wander away from you, that we would not be seduced by the glamour and the allure of this world into believing that there's really some, 
some goal that we achieve apart uh, from your from what you've called us to that will satisfy us. Thank you that in your love you draw us away from those things that that do woo our hearts and pull us away from you and you you call us to yourself. We want to res- respond with alacrity to that call. And we want to invest our lives where they will ultimately count for eternity in knowing you and loving you, giving ourselves in devotion to you, and seeking the good of others. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.